We almost got started without you. Oh, that would be totally fine. I'll just jump right into any conversation. This was a conversation you wanted to have, though. I did, because I feel like it's somewhat controversial. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's you can buy T-shirts that say the book was better than the movie. (laughs) It's a rallying cry. I don't own any of those, but I, I do think there is somewhat of the snobby, unfair stereotype that the book is always better. And I wanted to talk about sometimes Movies are the movie or the screen adaptation is better or more interesting or um, different and more vibrant. I don't know. Or how they're they should just be considered as completely separate uh, entities, which we're going to get into on today's episode of A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. And I'm Jeff. And you just heard from Sarah. Uh, We're also joined by Damon. Hi. Hello. And Drew is here, too. Hello. Hello. And... I'll, I'll I'll give the floor back to back to you, uh, Sarah. By I'll, I'll just add though that we also live in a world that I, I don't think this should go on, overlooked, where we're also adapting video games into movies. There's like it isn't even just books. You know what I mean? We, we adapted a, a board game into a movie in 1985. We did Clue. So yeah, it's 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 interesting. Toys, right? <laughs> like uh, pretty much anything. So I ranked mine. I I came up with four, but I could like riff pretty much on this Mm. all day. Um, And I ranked mine from books that I liked the least to books and movies that I felt sort of equal, you know, love for. So you would start off with a book you didn't like, but you loved the movie. Yes. All right. Take it away. Okay. So my number one is Practical Magic. Nice. Mm. Uh, The movie is like fuzzy and light and fun and witchy and it's Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman kind of like just being witchy sisters mm-hmm. um it is a joy to watch their relationship is just so lovely I was trying to pull it from my brain the author was Alice Hoffman so I've seen the movie several times and just loved it and I was like why haven't I ever read the book so a couple years ago I downloaded an audio version of the book and I couldn't, I didn't even finish it. I hated it so much. The writing is this like overly flowery background business. You don't get to know the sisters at all. Like they remain just like untangible. I couldn't picture them, even though I was trying to picture Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman. This is the thing you came to after having just loved the movie. I loved the movie. So you should have been an easy sell. I should have been an easy sell. Wow. It was, I hated the book. Oh. I think the movie is so much better. Sorry. And I like Alice Hoffman. I've read other things that she's written. Okay. Life. I think she's a good writer. Yeah. What do, do you think that it was tone overall? And uh, do you feel like you got to know the sisters better in the movie? What was the literal What's the magic? what was the literal magic going I, on there i just think the casting is great i think the tone is great i feel like they kind of focus more on the relationships than on all this like scene setting mm-hmm. there's just so much background noise in the book that i feel like gets in the way nice uh drew what do you want to start with do you and do you have i should say not that Sarah needed to set anybody up. Do you have anything on your list where you didn't like the book but loved the movie? This is not one of my top four, but I I, I really 
played around with what does this mean to say that the screen adaptation is as good as, and does it have to be representational of the entirety of what I got out of the book, or can it be representational of just elements of the book? Um, and I, I do have one that I don't have a lot to say about that comes to mind, which is uh, the 2018 Alex Garland film, An Annihilation, um, which is based on the first book in a, a trilogy that's uh, very paranoid and esoteric and deeply uncomfortable. Um, and then the Alex Garland film is somehow beautifully colorful and somehow less scary, but more disconcerting and stayed with me much longer than the book it's, it's based on. And for that, I don't know that the film actually really represents the book very well at all, but it is such a beautiful distillation of the surreal imagery that the author was trying to get at in ways that my mind absolutely could not produce. So I don't hate the book Annihilation. It's not bad, but I really, really loved that film. I agree. Did you read the book first? Mm -hmm, I did. I had the same experience. Read the book first, then saw the movie. Uh, and for those same reasons, you, you nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but sort of similar to Sarah's experience, um, I prefer the film The Color Purple over the book. Um, Spielberg, 1986, it's two and a half hours long. And when you read the book, and I read the book first, it doesn't feel like that would necessarily translate to two and a half hours. What are you mm -hmm. going to do with that? And what uh, they ended up doing with it is casting it perfectly and just leaning into what makes each of pretty much only the female characters sympathetic. Um, so the embodiment of the hardship hits differently when it is portrayed by a beautiful actor than when it's portrayed in this first-person narrative diary form, which is kind of a little bit thinking it through as opposed to purely experiential. Then it has this amazing... A fantasy sequence set in Africa that was just done purely for beauty's sake. Um, I really, really love that film. Uh, I like the novel, but I sob when I see the film. It pulls more out emotionally. Mm -hmm. That was definitely on the like on my potential ones to talk about as well. I do think the adaptation is fantastic. Excellent. How about you, Damon? Um, I don't have any there where I didn't really like the books, but I have one where I liked the book and loved the adaptation. So I'm actually going to take it in a slightly different direction because my book I chose is actually a graphic novel series It's called Lock and Key. It's written by Joe Hill, who is, if you don't already know, that's Stephen King's son. Um, it's a story where it's this family that has the ability to find and use these magical keys, each with their own abilities and stuff. It's really, really neat. But Netflix did an ad adaptation in 2020, and it's ongoing, just wrapped up. So I think there's three seasons, either two or three. I think there's three. Um, and there was just so much more they could do with it, with, like, exploring different keys that the book didn't explore. Or, like, you could actually hear, like, they could, they had this thing where they could hear when they were getting close to a key, and you could hear the sound in the music. And, like, that would never happen in the book itself. And I thought that was such a cool way of doing it. It really drew you into the story. A very dark fantasy but fantastic that's when uh directors it, they have so much more at their command uh, a cinematographer a sound mixer all of this stuff the editing so the, the 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 odds are technically stacked in their favor uh and uh and yet most people will say well the book was better but i think that those are two fantastic examples especially lock and key and annihilation where you you might just need more 
And I think for me, I don't have a, I don't have an extraordinary pick to start with. It's going to be Jurassic Park again. We talk about that <laughs> a lot on this podcast, but since Spielberg has already been mentioned, uh, it does make me think of the decisions that uh, uh, screenwriters get to make in terms of what they decide to lean on because Michael Crichton's book, it's the same cast of characters. But when you read the book, you can tell that Michael Crichton's favorite character is the mathematician, uh, not the uh, paleontologists, not the kids. He's very interested in this sciencey, weird, fractally chaos theory of it all. Uh, and there are moments where you're like, isn't this book about dinosaurs? This book doesn't feel like it's about dinosaurs. And Spielberg comes around and says, everybody loves dinosaurs. <laughs> We're getting rid of all this mathematician bullshit. We can still have the mathematician in the movie. We are focusing on the dinosaurs. And my favorite characters are, if not the paleontologist, the kids, because we should look at this through the kids' eyes. And if you look at Spielberg's movies, he, he always has a thing where he really wants to show E.T., hook etc he's always trying to look at things through the through the child's eyes and i think that's why that movie works so well uh because sometimes you gotta cut out cut out cut out the uh the well you gotta cut out some things and decide what is your actual movie going to be about you only have two hours to work with so i think that's important to remember but that's interesting that it brings up like what drew said is mm -hmm. about you know how faithful is this adaptation and like what sort of area you decide to lean into right I still am going to pass on both and the Sarah book and the movie of Jurassic Park. And I, I, I don't know what you, what you think, Drew. I think that both the book and both the movie land on kind of this Ahabian, like, don't mess with nature situation, don't play God kind of thing. Uh, Frankenstein, Ahab kind of thing. Uh, but, uh, you know. Yeah. Cr also, Crichton was caught up in some of the ethics around it. And yeah. he was just so deeply in love with fractals. Fractals. <laughs> My goodness. And fractals don't translate well to visuals. Nope, 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 nope. Now, I haven't read that one, but I do know, like, with adaptations, you have to consider they have to be significantly different anyways, right. just because it's a different form of medium. So there's more you can do in some ways, and there's less you can do in other ways. In a book, you could have a character that is constantly in their head, and you hear their thoughts all the time. If you try to adapt that to screen, it's just going to look cheesy the entire time, because you're not going to want to, like, hear their thoughts. You want to see what they're thinking. You want to show, not tell. Mm-hmm. Sarah, you won't care about this at all, but for people at home <laughs> who have only seen the movie and not seen and not read the book, uh, you'll be surprised to know that the lawyer character is portrayed in a much more uh, warmer light in Crichton's hands, and he's kind of just the butt of a joke, uh, uh, almost literally sometimes in Spielberg's hands. So I don't know. Crichton, uh, rest in peace. I guess you like lawyers. Sarah, <laughs> I have nothing else to offer there. Okay, well, I'm also going to pick something where one of the significant characters I feel like is handled very differently in the movie than the book. And that is Crazy Rich Asians. Mm. I almost had that on my it's, list. So I tried to read this several times before I saw the movie or before the movie came out. And I found it dense and overly complicated with the character relationships. And everybody is just like really mean to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and not that that's a deal breaker for me. I just like, I couldn't, there was just like too much going on. And then the movie came out and the movie a is just gorgeous. Just in front of your eyeballs, like the scenes and the costumes, um, you know, everything is like sort of um, on purpose over the top. 
uh, and then like Constance Wu and Henry Golding could be in everything as far as I'm concerned because mm -hmm. they are both gorgeous to look at. Mm -hmm. But I do think the Michelle, Michelle Yeoh character who plays Henry Golding's mom um, in the book, she just like is this like one note kind of like terrible person. And in the movie, I think you get her a little more. She's allowed to be prickly, um, but you just kind of understand a little bit more, I think, where she's coming from mm -hmm. and, and who she is. And I think part of that is probably some of the screenwriting, and I think probably some a lot of that is probably just uh, Michelle Yeoh is, mm -hmm. um, is amazing. Um, and you get just a lot more humor. I think you have the obvious humor of Aquafina in the movie, but I just felt like it the tone was better yeah um that i i didn't get some of that sort of dark humor from the book um so that that is uh one of mine that i and that i think the movie is better and that's interesting because once again sometimes you'll hear the argument that the the character is richer on the page and one note on the screen so oh, it's interesting yeah how that flip-flop can happen flip-flop yeah true what do you have next can kind of riff a little bit off of something that Sarah pointed out, but in a different way, which is that um, with Crazy Rich Asians, the style and the art direction are some of the things that really make the film. So when you when you read the Kevin Kwan book, it's it's not very lush in its descriptions overall. You're like, yep, get it, they're rich, it's Singapore, it's great. And then when you see it, it's just so much more immersive. This is not true in quite the same way, but um, one film that I really enjoyed immensely that I feel very meh about the book is, is Devil Wears Prada um, because it was just incredibly fun to see the art direction in that film. Um, and the ending is a little bit different. It creates in the main character, Andy, more autonomy. She makes a firm decision at the end. Um, so she's empowered, but you also get all the fun, girly prettiness along the way. Um, and you get, you know, Meryl Streep eating up everything and Emily Blunt's very good in it too. So sometimes something that's pretty shallow and light, once it's turned into something that is constructed by a cinematographer and a costumer and um, an art director, you get something that's so much bigger. And I think sometimes with uh, romantic comedies and, and with um, beach reads, lighter novels, sometimes the movies are so much more than what you could have anticipated. Um, I, I have the same experience with, with Gone Girl. I actually do not like that book. I just realized this while I was thinking about it. <laughs> I read the book first, I thought nothing of it. Mm -hmm. And then it's very stylish. Um, the performances themselves are stylized in a way that I think I was reading it more realistically in my brain. Um, and it looks beautiful. So there are things that don't seem like they would be artistic on the cover of them when you're reading them as a book that turn into beautiful pieces of visual art on the screen. Excellent. How about you, Damon? My next one, I had very different feelings between the book and the movie. And I'll explain that in a second. So I chose The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. So the book came out in 2008 and the first movie came out in 2012. And what I mean by different feelings is this this book series very much has a strong love triangle in it. And when I was reading the book, I was very, 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 very firmly Team Gale. And then I watched the movie and I completely switched sides. And I find myself going back and forth. When I reread the books, I was back Team Gale. When I rewatched the movies, <laughs> I was back Team Peta. And that just kept happening. And if it was 
how the characters were portrayed on screen, a lot of the body language stuff that you don't necessarily see inside a book, but you do get to see on a screen was really cool to me. Um, I also thought the movie felt a little bit more fast-paced and suspenseful, especially once they got into the arena. So in the book, you had time to hear about what Katniss was planning and like time spent in the cave with Peta and all the stuff where, yeah, there were fast-paced moments. She had to figure out how to deal with certain situations, but you got to see when it slowed down. Or in the movie, they got in the arena, in the arena, and it was just like boom, 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 boom. This, 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 this movie over. And so I, which I loved. Don't get me wrong. It was a different feel, though, and so that was really interesting to me. Less planning, more action. Sure, you look like you. No, <laughs> I, no I, I do agree, but I think it's an example of, of where losing the internal dialogue makes the entire thing much more enjoyable totally. over, overall. And I think the opposite is true for, for some uh, book-to-screen adaptations where the internal dialogue is what gave it meaning. Mm-hmm. But because it's because uh, the Hunger Games trilogy is done as an action film, um, it doesn't need it, and it does move better. And the editing makes it work better. I, I think even makes it work better as it goes along. A lot of um, younger people uh, did not enjoy the the third uh, novel in that series because it, it really goes into the elements of war and planning and trying to figure out what's ethical in war. And while that is definitely touched upon in the in the films that make it up, not having to listen to Katniss think it through <laughs> moves it right along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree about all of that. And uh, Stanley Tucci in both of those films. Stanley Tucci, terrific. Is a lovely bright spot. Just terrific. <laughs> I've revealed in this podcast that I watched uh, Pulp Fiction at too young of an age, um, but turned out fine, I think, hopefully. In <laughs> uh, that, so far, so uh, that's obviously not based on a book, and that has nothing. But that is my my intro into how, at probably also too young of an age in the late '90s, I started reading lots of uh, crime fiction, and I was drawn specifically to Elmore Leonard, especially since he was a Detroit native and was considered one of the masters of the genre. Uh, and just uh, a good punchy writer, so he had uh, he had real he had a real moment in the '90s, and there was a slew of Elmer Leonard films. Uh, three out of the four of them hit it entirely out of the park because, uh, and that's uh, you have Get Shorty in 1995 with John Travolta, and then it's followed up by Jackie Brown uh, in 1997 Quentin Tarantino. And then a little film that Sarah literally just caught up with called Out of Sight with George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. First time seeing that, Sarah? No, it was a rewatch okay. for me, but I probably saw it. When did it come out? Did you say 97? 98. So I probably saw that in the theaters in 98. Yeah. And then last fall, I was on an airplane and I was like, I'm going to put something on that I will like just can kind of tune out mm-hmm. um, and maybe fall asleep. I was sucked in, even though I like I knew the story and what happened, I was sucked into that. The dialogue, the pacing, um, the sizzling chemistry between Jennifer Lopez and George Clooney of like people like kind of meh about both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the screen together, I was like chemistry. It was just like I couldn't look away. Elmore Leonard is often credited for his dialogue and his books tend to be much more plot than story. So they are 
almost the book is ready made. Like this is actually a screenplay. You should just put this on, <laughs> on the film. Yeah. Which is what Barry Sonnenfeld does in 1995 with Kid Shorty. It is very much just the book is right there on the screen. Uh, the director of Adam's Family and Men in Black taking on uh, Elmore Leonard. Um, and that's just a straight book to, to movie transition there. And I don't know. I don't think Barry Sonnenfeld has ever been a confident director. However, Quentin Tarantino decides I'm going to really focus on this character, Jackie Brown, who isn't necessarily a huge character in the source material and makes the whole movie about her still works. And then you've got, of course, uh, out of sight, Steven Soderbergh. It's totally working. I would probably never like that's a good example of something. I will probably never go back and read those books like Right. Do I need to? No, but they're like, they're very of, that's why I said they're very of that, that nineties, like gritty, cynical, like dark, hard boiled Pulp Fiction-y kind of energy. And like that it's, oh, I should say there, who can help me out here? There's a Timothy Elephant is in some sort of television show where he's playing a cowboy kind of detective. You're all just blank stares. Everyone (laughs) justified is the name of the show. Justified. (laughs) That also comes from Elmore Leonard source material. I can't speak on it. I haven't seen the show, but his, his characters, I don't know if his, I don't know if his style is in vogue, you know, this this that whole crime fiction thing isn't happening anymore. It it had its moment. It did. In the nineties. I didn't think that out of sight was going to hold up. And I really thought that it did. Good. Go rewatch. Go rewatch it. What do you got next, Sarah? So my next one is The English Patient by Michael and Dante. And this is one of those where like, I like the book quite a bit. I do not, however, suggest it to a lot of readers because I find it like you, it's one of those like, it's like a AP English kind of books where it's like, you have to focus and it's dense and it's not very accessible. Um, it is very literary. And a lot of Michael Odenace's stuff is like that. Can you remind me, I believe the book is structured that it's told from the perspective of four people. Does it intersplice those perspectives or is it just, this is this person's part? This is this no, person's part? No, it intersplices. Part? Okay. I couldn't remember. But the movie is something that I think is maybe better than the book. It's definitely more accessible. I think that I would def- suggest it to people who like that, like historic, sweeping historic dramas with the love story and kind of a a little bit of a twist. Um, the settings are great. Kristen Scott Thomas, Ray Fiennes, delightful to watch on screen. Um, I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember having read the book and then seen the movie that I was thinking, oh, they're leaning too hard into the love story to these two characters. They're letting these other three characters go fall by the wayside. Other two characters. Isn't it? (laughs) There's a lot of character. Anyway. Anyway. um, I did, however, we had a discussion the other day about movies that are too long. And one of the things that I do like about Michael Andanche is his books are slow reads, but they're short. Mm The movie, I did not remember this in watching the film because it doesn't feel like that, but I looked it up. It's an hour, it's two hours. And 42 minutes. And 42 minutes. minutes. He looked it up too. That is too long. (laughs) So I'm sorry for saying how accessible it is and everybody should go watch it. It is gorgeous. That is bonkers long. Like quit making long movies, people. Stay tuned later for our recommendations to watch the uncut Dune and Lord of the Rings. Anyway, <laughs> I just want to add that is part of the reason I love when things get turned into like mini series because then it's indigestible chunks. Like I can watch 
six hour long episodes like that's fine rather than a three and a half hour long movie mm-hmm. that's a good point mm-hmm. yes i agree and what i didn't put on my list and maybe somebody else is putting that on their list but station 11 um which i really liked the book short book was turned into a eight episode yes so approximately um hour-long series And it sort of like expanded the universe a little bit and it allowed the storytelling to like kind of develop Mm -hmm. and the characters developed in ways that I think are more interesting even than the book. And I liked the book a lot, but I I agree. I think it was a good decision to like turn that into a show and not a three hour movie. Listeners at home may be picking up soundtrack of a car outside. (laughs) You're just, we're just going to roll with it. So, kind of already spoiled it. Um, yes. Yes, it's time to talk about Dune or the many Dunes, depending on how we're how we're thinking about it. Um, this is one of the approaches I took to to thinking about as good as the book. What does that mean? So, in the novels, Dune is delightfully complex. If you are somebody who enjoys process descriptions, it's there. If you are somebody who um, likes likes complex ideas about warfare, it's there. If you are somebody who is struggling with whether or not you like religion, it's there. Um, it has family dynamics. It has everything. Um, and I personally really enjoy gigantic, overly wordy, overly descriptive books. I find them very satisfying. <laughs> And I also like creating visions in my own mind of what this is going to be. And I think often when somebody says the book was better, what they mean is I had a vision. It was very clear to me. I enjoyed that vision and they had a different vision they put on the screen. However, there are things that I had a vision of that look much better um, in different uh, screen adaptations. So and then there are some things that I haven't seen yet in Dune that I am very hopeful I'm going to see in Dune Part 2, the follow-up to the 2021, assuming it's coming. Mm -hmm. Um, So some of the things that I really got something out of seeing um, on the screen that made it more enjoyable when I went back later and reread the original, uh, first two novels at least, um, were... Um, both the presentation of the sandworms and the trial um, that the main character has to go through in order to be able to ride the sandworm. Like, how does this manifest? Lady Jessica becoming the reverend mother. The whole presentation of the religious order visually, but also being able to use the voice to control other people. In the most um, recent Dune film, the battle sequences were very good, but there is one battle sequence that I really like, which is um, the Atreides troopers are holding the palace stairs. And in the novels, there's like so much emphasis on um, the house Atreides is just full of valor and bravado, and there is nothing that will stop them from carrying out what they need to carry out. Um, And so to see them going in against Harkonnen to see this like very, very close combat, it really like drove home for me that Atreides is fierce and it will take, you know, the emperor's butchers to level the playing field. So all this stuff I know, mm-hmm. I know it, I've read it a million times, not a million times, I've read them several times over the course of many <laughs> decades. Um, 
but it made me excited to go back to the source material mm -hmm. and it did not match the vision in my head. And there are always some things where you're like, well, that's not actually how I thought the Reverend Mother would be. Mm -hmm. um, but it's enough different in enough different ways that it takes a very complex book and gives you some concrete things to hang on in between these long descriptions. I really enjoy that. Um, and staying in the, the sci-fi realm, um, the His Dark Materials series on HBO that just wrapped up is not as good as the Philip Pullman novels to me, because what the Philip Pullman novels represent to me is a very nuanced way to present to younger people, although I was an adult when I read them, the complexities about how belief dictates what society allows people to do in terms of individual freedom. Wonderful concept, abstract, but there's this big long list of things that I just want to see. Mm -hmm. I want to see the daemons. I want to see the witches. I want to see the alethiometer. I need to see the subtle knife doing its thing. I need to see the specters. I need to see the cliff gas, armored bears. You could never see too many polar bears wearing clothing. Accurate. <laughs> Angels and harpies. So the series, I don't love it. But every time I get to see one of these beings um, that I have a clear image of, and I get to talk to somebody who's also really into this about how the vision does and does not align, that is a great conversation. Mm -hmm. I should next time my husband comes to visit, he needs to come talk to you because he is watching through the series right now and loving it. So it'd be interesting to see how the two of you compare with, with a lot of that. send him my way. <laughs> yeah, and he, he's actually reading through all like the, because there's more than just a trilogy. There's mm. then the Book of Dust, which the first one was a prequel. The second one was like a postlude to the things. And then there's a whole bunch of other books he wrote within that same universe. And he's like working his way through all of them. So, yeah. I have high hopes for season three. I think season two admittedly was affected by a pandemic, but we'll see. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Well, my next one, continuing this whole dark fantasy thing, mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about, once again, a Netflix series, but it was the adaptation of um, a series of unfortunate events, which I did not read that series until I was an adult. Um, as a kid, I tried to, and I just didn't get the humor. As an adult, I absolutely adore them. They are hilarious. They're goofy. They're weird. Don't love how I ended, but that's, that's its own thing. This series much more than that, what, 2004 or so Jim Carrey movie, which was not great. It really captures all of that in it. It's that dark, sardonic humor that everybody is there for. And it really felt like the series was designed with 90s babies in mind. Mm -hmm. So very much my generation, the sort of people that would have possibly read the books as kids and that would want to experience it as an adult. It wasn't necessarily aimed towards children, although a child could watch it, but the jokes there and all that stuff was very much um, towards your target. And I admittedly still have not finished it, but I have enjoyed all of what I've watched. Nice. I'm going to make a hard left turn. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to go into, but, but I'm going to go into, uh, so I, I talked about Elmer Leonard where it's like, this is ready made to just literally go on the screen, just hand it to a director. Uh, I'm going to talk about scenarios where maybe the, maybe the ideas in the book or maybe there's, there's potential in the book and maybe it's just, it's just not executed. And I'm not saying that these two writers are bad writers. I am saying they were more than likely hobbled by an intake of way too many drugs. So that's, you know, that that might uh, hobble things like Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, both 
books uh, written by uh, 60s icons, drug icons. Uh, in Ken Kesey's case, that's a book about existing inside of an asylum, and it's told from the perspective of a different character, and they change it in the in the movie. But that's not the reason why I like it, because I actually like the idea of putting it in that character's perspective in the book, rather than switching it over to Jack Nicholson's character in the 70s uh, remake by Milos Forman. But I don't know if he's exactly the best writer yet, or if he's as coherent as he can be. And you give it into a director's hands and they can just give you a more cleaner presentation, much more also the case with uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Milos Forman also adapted uh, the um, play of Amadeus, the stage play of Amadeus into a film that worked. That's all I have on that. Sometimes sometimes the writer's just uh, not uh, not quite there. Not exactly a novelist. How how long is Amadeus, the movie? The theatrical cut is 220, which you can handle. <laughs> Real heads watch the three-hour uncut. <laughs> what else you got, Sarah? Okay, so my next one, as I've worked on my list, is to the one where, kind of like Damon, like I liked this book as much as I liked the movie. In fact, the book is probably in my top five of all time favorites. And that is Atonement by Ian McEwen. This is a book I've read several times um, and I'm not a big rereader. And I think it gets better every time I read it. It is, there is sort of a secret and a twist that I feel like is not a thriller twist. It's not a Gone Girl-like twist, but it is kind of an aha moment that I feel like with rereads gets just gets better because you see the construct of the novel that you just, it it's just, I love it so much. The movie um, stars Keira Knightley as Celia and James McAvoy, forget the guy's name. He's the gardener's son. And um, it's gorgeous. And a young Saoirse Ronan. And a young Saoirse Ronan and Benedict Cumberbatch. And like the cast is is fantastic. Um, the, the book and the movie are sort of set up there. So there's an event that takes place that is a life-changing event for, for everybody involved. And the buildup to that event in both the book and the movie are great. And I wasn't sure how the movie was going to handle that buildup. Um, and then the events that happen afterwards are are um, equally wonderful to watch on the film. This movie has uh, the sexiest sex scene that ever sexed. Oh, she said like, it. it. Wow. It is real sexy. Sarah, this is a family show. And which is why I'm only using that <laughs> word. Uh, it takes place in a library. Uh-huh. And there's a green dress involved. Oh, my. And Drew's kind of <laughs> blushing over there, too. I feel like she's seen it. Um, it's it's real nice. Wow. Um, and that part is better than the book, because I feel like the book doesn't do that instance justice, because you don't have Keira Knightley in this gorgeous dress. And um, But the tension is really there, and that kind of turns it up for everything that happens. I also wasn't sure how the tw- the... I'm calling it a twist, but sort of the aha moment was going to be handled in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it is done very well. And even though I had read the book several times when I watched the movie, 
when it happens in the movie, I was like, oh, oh like, yes, this is how it's done. Um, it, I mean, not that it, it, it's not different in any way, um, but I just thought visually how this, the sound um, and the visual of it is just, it's very moving and it's very striking. This is directed by a director named Joe Wright, who went on to go on to a bit of an ambitious trilogy of adaptations. He also did Pride and Prejudice and Anna Karenina, uh, all with Kira Knightley. <laughs> And I do not, like, I'm not like a Kira Knightley stan by any means. Like, she's fine. Um, I just think she's really well cast as, as Celia, as the sort of, like, upper crust snobby. And it only um, has a runtime of two hours and three minutes. It is two hours and three minutes. It's perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> There's a, an uncut uh, um, uh, David Lynch version of Dune that's three hours if you're ever uh, interested, Sarah. And also the the Denis Villeneuve uh, version will be five hours when it's when it's if that's you're too long. <laughs> I also think a lot of books are too long too, so I'm not just picking on movies that's by okay. any means. That's okay. Um, the shorter they are, the more you can read, right? But I do find it interesting that Drew mentioned, you know, kind of got to the heart of a lot of this is you have books that have either like a big fan base, like a very dedicated fan base. Or you have people who just really love the source material who are like, here in my head is what it looks like or or what I'm envisioning or the important parts to me. And then when somebody else takes that and it's just different, like you can be like, oh, that's not what I pictured at all. Um, or it can, you know, it's just like that that's tricky. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I that would be the real nerve wracking to me to take something that just like whole communities just like really feel for um, and grow up with or um, connect with um, and to take it and try and recreate those same feelings and the same emotions um, must just be really difficult. And so, um, you know, I feel for him too sometimes, especially in that scenario. It can be a very thankless job. <laughs> totally. But then battle. sometimes you put, you think of like really terrible adaptations and you're like, they didn't even try. They didn't even try. <laughs> Drew, what else is on your list? Um, I was thinking about where a adaptation is very well aligned with the source material. And the one that I really love is Persepolis, which is... Mm. Um, based on a graphic novel, uh, same name. Um, it came out in 2007, and it's an animated film. So we're going from a graphic novel, a graphic mm -hmm. depiction, to another graphic depiction. And the author um, and illustrator of the original Persepolis of the novel is Marjane Satrapi, and she also oversees the um, writing and direction um, with Vincent Paranaut, that's his name, um, for the film. But it feels perfectly aligned because um, there is no real differentiation. Um, the, the artistic elements just translate really beautifully. So if you love the book and you don't want to see anything broader or different from the book, but you'd like the world to feel bigger, then the film does that. The, the book is very much through the eyes of this teenager. Um, how she's experiencing the Iranian re revolution. And it's very good at staying within what would be normally developmentally and emotionally appropriate for a person that age. In the novel, 
Um, that narrative is a little bit diluted, although it is still dictating over all the structure of it, which lets us feel more and understand more other characters like grandparents and the people she goes to school with. So the world gets bigger, but visually feels exactly the same. Nice. How about right, Damon? What do you My got? last one is also one that was extremely faithful to the source material. And I just want to add a comment before I even talk about it that I don't necessarily care about that so much as long as it has the same I guess vibe is the best word as long as it vibes with the original even if they change major plot points I am generally okay with that it is a different medium to telling a story it doesn't have to be identical in fact I've seen some that are virtually identical that are terrible like I saw in fifth grade this made for tv movie of the lion the witch in the wardrobe and it's almost as if they just grabbed the book and said here's your script <laughs> and it's just that's what it was and it was boring it was the first time i ever fell asleep in class and don't want to live through that one again but i'm going to of course do the opposite now by giving an example where it is extremely faithful and that is the recent came out in april of last year um what originally was a web comic turned into being published into actual uh graphic novels and now a netflix series of heartstopper and i just I don't have enough amazing things to, to say about Heartstopper. If you have not watched Heartstopper, you should watch Heartstopper. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, if you're into this sort of thing or not, it is perfect for everybody, and I will die on that hill. Um, it is one of those amazing, feel-good, give-you-a-hug sort of stories, and I can't wait to see where they continue on. I've been following the webcomic since its early days, and in fact, I actually support the artist and author on Patreon, so I see updates about stuff. So when this got started, got picked up by Netflix, I got to see some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, and when they announced that they found their Nick and their Charlie, like that was such a big deal, and it was so cool, and those kids are perfect. But I think my favorite thing about this adaptation is that because I've read the webcomic so many times, I am very familiar with it, you see scenes in the adaptation that it's just like they quite literally took this frame from the comic stuck the people in the same clothes in the same spot in the same position and put that on screen and it was just like oh i've been waiting for that like i have that framed i need to see that in life and then they did this really cool stuff with having some of like like leaves and hearts and stuff floating around that looked like they were made out of paper that looked like they were drawn in the comics which just made it so cool Side note, if you Google Heartstopper right now, you get to see leaves floating around the page. It's a Google Easter egg. It is beautiful. Check it out. Um, but just such a great story. They did get rid of a couple characters that I think they're introducing in the next season. We'll see what happens. Um, but go watch Heartstopper. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I, let's go around. Some quick wrap-ups. I'm going to do some rapid-fire things here and just give a shout-out uh, to... Uh, Stanley Kubrick, he only made 13 films, and I believe eight of them came from uh, an adaptation. And anytime he did make an adaptation, it was vastly different, but it's always, he always made them better. I've, I've read Clockwork Orange, I've read The Shining, the movies, the movies are better. Uh, also, a uh, shout out, I know that, I know Cricket isn't here to speak up for uh, Muppet Christmas Carol, which is my favorite adaptation of Charles Dickens' book. <laughs> And does have a lot of direct quotes, despite it being on the surface uh, a Muppet movie. It does have a lot of direct quotes and uh, pulls it off. Oh, and where else was I going? Um, also giving everyone opportunity in this roundtable to uh, share things that completely didn't work. I know you had a few to add, Damon. 
adaptations that don't work. Oh, yeah. I would just say, for the love of God, will we ever get a good adaptation of The Three Musketeers? That's all I have to say. Sarah? What? Well, I kind of have two things. So one is, um, I think one of the nice things that, that we haven't talked about about adaptations is that, and Hot, Heartstopper brings this to mind, is when you have something that's been popular on you know, a streaming service or something like that, it brings people who've not yet experienced the original material to the original material. Like when that was popular, what this past fall or something like that, like there was a lot of teenagers coming in asking for that book. And I was like, yay, this is great. Like you're introducing, you know, I think some individuals who might not, it might not have come across their sort of reading list um, before the show. Um, and I, I think that's really great that some of these adaptations are just creating that sort of like new, new book readers. This doesn't, this doesn't contribute to your point whatsoever, but you were hemming and hawing to see that there was a high circulation rate for where the crawdads sing. Oh. And technically it's the same effect of the movie coming out and people coming to get the We book. are not talking about that because that is, <laughs> gets too much attention anyway. Right. My, yeah. my last one, I think for like bad to good mm -hmm. and, um, is one of my favorite authors is John Irving. And he's written um, a lot of really big, long books. And he has some really great ad adaptations from like his early works, like World According to Garp and Hotel New Hampshire. Um, and then there was a really terrible adaptation of A Prayer for Owen Meany called Simon Birch. And it is like embarrassingly bad. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't, the book is complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, and it doesn't do any justice to the book whatsoever. And I think John Irving was embarrassed about it and was like, you know what? I'm going to do this myself. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote the adaptation for Cider House Rules and won an Oscar for the screenplay. And it's a it's a great book wow. and it's a great film. Wow. I love both of those, those works together. Right on. Yeah. True. Um, thinking about... Uh, where we have existing visuals and existing fan bases and the fan bases are unhappy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, and what the difference is between the, the made for TV um, Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe and, and say His Dark Materials is that I feel like the people writing and designing and creating the visuals for adaptations that move from one um, either visual medium or from a novel that really leans into the the fantastic is that the people who create the successful adaptations are saying yes and so they're not saying start from scratch they're not saying my vision they're saying existing vision how it's manifest itself in common common cultures um and nowadays how it's manifested itself in fan art how it's manifested itself in fanfic and here's something that we can do because our toolbox is so much bigger. So I think that that's what makes a lot of the fantasy adaptations I like as successful as the books. Um, and the last thing I wanted to touch on was that for horror, there are some things that are scarier in theory than they are in vision. And there are some things that are scarier on the screen than they could ever be in any given description. And The Shining really touches on that because in the book, it's a haunted house story. And there's some mental illness going on, but that's not really what the thing is. And the 
movie is Descent into Madness. And these supernatural events are manifestations of insanity and alcoholism and things that feel very real to me. Mm-hmm. I like all Stephen King books. I find them all somewhat scary. The Shining is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a lot about like the right casting making a difference. And uh, Shelley Duvall as Wendy is in pain. Like she is presenting a physical representation of not just horror, but like your world dissolving and the sense of you're going to be able to survive going away. Like there's a Mm -hmm. physicality to that that can't be captured in the books. Um, Yeah. And uh, very, very briefly, um, Fight Club. Uh, the movie is not at all like the book in some ways. The book opens on a nude beach. The movie opens on an airplane. The, um, this is uh, Fincher was able to take the most absurd elements and uh, restructure them while at the same time capturing all of the beautiful surreality um, and weirdness of, of the novel. Um, and so that's another one where sort of like Kubrick and the Shining, um, Kubrick was able to identify the elements that were most salient to creating strong emotional responses and good images. Um, And he did that by wandering away many times. Uh, Fincher kind of does the opposite in Fight Club. He really extracts certain certain images and certain ideas from the novel, leans into it, cuts out the stuff that's a little too weird for film. And even and even Chuck Palahniuk uh, agrees with you. Yeah, in in the DVD commentary, he admits it. Before going into a couple adaptations that I hate, because I definitely have a few of those and I really want to talk about them, I want to bounce off something Drew was saying, and that is that sometimes adaptations can also fix some problems in the source material because the source material may not be perfect. So, for example, Lock and Key, the source material, I don't think there's a single non-white character, mm-hmm. and they fix that in the adaptation, and they make some of the primary characters of color, and it's wonderful that they make that decision. So I think that's great. Um, especially if the source material is older, you're going to see a lot more of that happening in the adaptations. Real quick, though, I do have some adaptations that are like terrible. <laughs> My first pick is a, a uh, middle grade fantasy, the Percy Jackson series, fantastic book series. The Lightning Thief made in 2010 was one of the worst movies I've ever seen of all time. I am okay with changing things, but they changed the age of the character from... I think he's 11 in the original book, and he's like 17 in the adaptation, which is significantly different. Um, They change characters. It's just the the magic is like completely removed from it, and it's just so, 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 so poorly done. The second one on there is also fantasy, and I actually drew. Did you see the 2007 Golden Compass? I'm assuming you probably did at some point. Yes, I did. did. So that's on there as one of my terrible adaptations, and I'm so thankful that they're making the new one. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not enjoying it as much as you want to, it's it's still better than it was. It is helping to wash the taste out of of my mouth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what happened with that movie. Did they get too many notes, and did they make too many bad decisions? I don't know. It does feel... uh, it feels like that movie is strangled away from being good, unfortunately. Yes. But then my number one terrible pick brings up something you were saying at the very beginning, Jeff, about how adaptations are not always a movie taken from a book. It could be a movie taken from a board game like Clue. It could be a movie taken from a video game like the new Mario movies that are coming out. Or in this case, it was a movie, a live action movie taken from a cartoon series. And that is The Last Airbender. Um, Avatar The Last Airbender, the cartoon series, is incredible. It has so many great themes in it. It is well worth watching, even as an adult. The Last Airbender is where M. Night Shyamalan took the source material. It's almost like he just, like, skimmed a book about what Avatar is and then 
chucked it at a wall and decided here's a movie. Mm-hmm. Character name pronunciations, uh, whatever. The name, the main character is Aang. We're gonna call him Ung instead. Like Sokka, not Soka. Like it's like he did not even watch any of it to begin with, and understandably, people were very angry about that. You're not gonna do an interpretive dance to do earthbending and need a whole group of ten people to move a pedal. You need one toss, and then you're good to go. So yeah. I do pick up on the commonality there, though, is that all of those movies are big budget swings, uh, hopeful blockbusters, hopeful 200 million grocers. Let's let's have a big giant movie that fall on their face. But again, I have to imagine, like, how many cooks are in the kitchens for those movies? And when they really are just caring about butts in the seats and getting some bucks, then they they definitely are not going to care about those books. So, and I think, I feel like some of the hits that we did that did connect are not those big swings for any big blockbuster situation. Well, Dune, Dune being an outlier, but. And I think oftentimes adaptations are served very well by having the original creator, if they're still wrong, be a part of the process. Yeah. Because that, some of my favorite ones, like Heartstopper, Alice Oseman is on set every day for that and really made it happen. Um, and that really makes a difference where I don't know if any of the original creators of Air, uh, of uh, Avatar were part of that. I highly doubt it. Yeah. If they were, I feel like they'd be embarrassed to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can definitely see that with um, Netflix's The the Sandman, too. You can, you can see Neil Gaiman all over it. And also, to go back to your point, where we would make different casting decisions, we would make different characterization decisions. We would be diverse because this is, a, this is an immense world. Of course it's diverse. Mm-hmm. The Sandman really, really did that. And it made a difference for me. I found it slightly more more enjoyable than that comic series which was truly why i'm still into comics at this point as an adult like yeah it yeah. makes a difference for sure and, and like things like uh wicked the musical which is significantly different than the book by gregory mcguire but when stephen sondheim not stephen sondheim when stephen schwartz mm-hmm. another stephen s uh when stephen schwartz pitched the idea to gregory mcguire gregory was like you understand it. You get my vision here. And even though it was very different and took widely different paths, like they still collaborated, worked together to make this awesome thing. And it's, you know, one of the most popular music of modern age, musicals of modern age, rather. That brings up an interesting point about the the original creators sometimes being involved in like a very good yeah. adaptation is I thought about talking about To All the Boys I Loved Before, which was a Netflix series, also, also a YA. On my list. And Jenny Han was very involved, mm-hmm. I think, in in that, in all aspects of of that adaptation, which I think is like totally like rewatchable on a many times. Uh, and I love, and I really liked the series too. And totally, totally and totally, in the perfect world, we we would always involve that author, uh, and have them as a collaborator. Well, and I don't know about always. Well, I think Damon makes a good example of like you know sometimes you can pitch it to the creator and they maybe they run in a different direction with it or if they get like you said like the vibe of it then what they make could be different i mean at least consulted yeah or at least yeah not at least not more than just here's a bag of money we're going to take your property (laughs) and do whatever we want (laughs) just a little more than that um well we are out of time thank you so much everyone for joining us on this latest episode of a little too quiet uh the prelude to an eventual viewing of the film jurassic park by sarah (laughs) and she will report back later Thank you for listening. Uh, It is A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. And we thank John Duffy for the music to intro and outro this uh, show each week. 
please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, and if you want to support this podcast, go to friendofriends.org. And uh, we'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>